68, 69, 70. We were hated. They spat on us. They hated us. If you were in Vietnam. Welcome to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of long-standing members of the Irish community in New York, many of whom we have come to know through a place called the New York Irish Centre in Queens. In this episode, we get to know Mike Doherty from South Armagh, who came to New York in 1963. The Irish are wanderers. Travellers across seas and across time, they carry within themselves two maps, one dotted with the locations where they've plied their wares, and another, a temporal map, of seasons and their years, episodes that have come to be the landmarks, the stories of their journey. But for most Irish in America, and no doubt for immigrants from many other places, there is always one date on the time map which is exact, precise to the month and day, sometimes even to the hour, a moment stamped forever on a life, a moment held sacred and wholly personal, not shared as in 9-11-2001 or November 22, 1963, as if this date were a keystone bearing upon its shoulders all that has come since, a day when before became before and after became after, and that is the date of arrival of the wanderer in their new country. But Michael Doherty, who we are about to get to know, keeps two such dates in his head. Yes, that day he left his home in Ireland and headed for America. Left South Armagh, September the 13th, 1963. The other, the day he was drafted into the killing fields of Vietnam, far, far from his Bronx apartment. That was 64, April the 28th. Compared to normal Irish nomadic standards, Mike's meanderings have been modest. He didn't trek through the building sites of England, no tall tales of Berlin or Brisbane or Buenos Aires, outside of his one sojourn in Southeast Asia, where he never cared to return, he has lived his American life entirely within three of New York City's five boroughs, the Bronx, Queens and Manhattan. But if anyone has wandered in this metropolis, this city that never sleeps, it has to be Mike. But let's have Mike tell us more himself. And, story man that he is, he's happy to bring us along with him. I came over to my uncle in the Bronx, and one thing I loved it when I arrived here. So much to do, it was so different. And of course we left Ireland because there was no work, so you had to do something. So then I, I went to work in a factory in Woodlawn, making plastic bags. And that lasted until April the 28th, I got drafted where I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey, done basic training, then went to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, for medical training. I stayed there, I think it was about eight weeks, and then they kept us on for eight weeks, advanced medical training. And then by the end of the year, I think it was maybe three weeks before Christmas, we were on our way over to Vietnam. 
my unit, which was the 11th Medical Detachment. Uh, we arrived in Vietnam near in a little place called Hoi An, near Da Nang, close to where the 1st Marine Division were stationed. And uh, I, was, I worked in the aid station there. Saw a lot of stuff. Tag them and bag them. Tried to help them. Stuff like that. It was a little over 11, 11 months and a, and a week, I think, we got back to Texas, where I finished out. Then I come up to New York to my uncle again. I was there a couple of months when I moved in uh, to an apartment on Broadway around 194th. And I went bartending. I bartended in the Blarney, Blarney Rose, around 34th on 6th Avenue, where I broke in. Then after that, I went to work in uh, the Fordham Pub, across from the Jugger Punch, which a lot of people will remember. And then I ended up in Good Time Charlie's, another Irish cabaret. And then uh, I ended up in the Donnemay Pub, 213th on Broadway, when I got the chance to go into the buildings. So I went down to the buildings as a midnight porter. Then one year, I worked uh, as the back elevator man. And then my superintendent, Jimmy Lynch, was leaving. And the board called me up and asked me if I wanted to take the manager's job. And I was there 35 years till I retired. And now I'm happily retired and enjoying life. Mike grew up in a small village called Beliks in South Armagh, a place often referred to as Banded Country, according to Mike. But that's a chapter in another book. Mike's brother Oliver went on to America before him, while his other brother Paul, now gone, spent much of his time in Saudi Arabia as a building contractor with a zest for endurance sports like the Ironman Triathlon. So what was it brought Mike to New York? There was nothing at home. You were lucky if you were working. It usually never lasted. My brother was out here already. He was the one that said, you need to come out here. There's nothing going on over there. And I remember my aunt said he was home. And she was making me all these lasagnas and all this stuff and <laughs> drinking coffee. I said, I, I don't want coffee. You... You'll be drinking coffee when you come to New York. I says, I ain't going to New York. Four years later, five years later, I was over here. And kind of liked it the minute I came here. There was so much to do and things were so different. Was it two maps, I said? Mike might have had a third to negotiate the city's Irish nightlife. I loved it when I arrived here. It just, there was so much, so many dance halls. Bars. <laughs> there was so much to do. I just, I loved it in this country the minute I arrived. In 73rd and Jerome was the Red Mill. And you had two great bands then. The High Spots with Pat Lyons. I'm sure a lot of people my age remember that. And then there was uh, the Jaeger House between 84th and 85th on Lexington. And that's now a high rise. I was in 89, I was standing on top of my building. That would be the building on 84th Street in Manhattan that Mike managed for over three decades. Looking across at the old Jaeger house when the wrecking ball hit it, I had tears in my eyes. <laughs> it was Ireland's 32, that was another place on 86th. That was a bar and a dance hall too. He sent a ballroom, I, that was downtown anyway. That might have been close to Times Square. It was weird to get to know girls and have a few drinks and meet all your friends. Especially all Irish girls at the dance. You see one you like, dance and hope. You can get to take her home and get the data and, you know, that's what we were all about. <laughs> and the train, would it be the subway you'd go the home? The four. The four train. Yeah. I think it was the, the D train. 
when you went to uh, city center. Conscription. It's when some authority decides it needs to round up men, whether they like it or not, and sometimes women too, to fight a war on its behalf, to defend against some other authority, or to conquer it. It's been going on since antiquity. The Romans were skilled at pulling farmers off their land and putting a sword in their hands. Ireland nearly got dragged into Britain's conscription in World War I, but Irish nationalism held it at bay. In the States they call it the draft. It's been used by the US during all the big wars, including the War of Independence, until public outcry during Vietnam put a stop to it, for now at least. I knew that when I came here that I was eligible after six months to be drafted in this country. That was then, the draft was big then. And then my Uncle Paddy says to me, you got to go down and register, which if you didn't, they'd come after you and you might end up back in Ireland. I think it was four months here when I registered and then six months later I got a call to go down to Whitehall Street took the physical and sitting there and there's a gentleman from Canada I'll never get him Duzant he said where are you going I said I don't know I'm here for a physical so he says to me you know man I was in the British Air Force I was in the Canadian Air Force and now I'm joining the American Air Force I says good for you so he just says and he looks and he says oh you're going in today I says what do you mean I'm going in today Right at the bottom in red letters, immediate induction. I said, what do you mean? That means I'm not going home. Brother, you ain't going home. The army will give you everything you need. Don't worry about going home. And I ended up out in Jersey, and there was about 40 of us. And they said, okay, throw all your stuff in barracks one or whatever it was, and line up to make your phone call. It was pouring. I finally got through to Oliver, my brother. I said, I was down in Whitehall Street today. Oh, that was today? I said, yes. So where are you now? I said... Where, where am I? And I said, where am I? But 40 guys shouted, Fort Dix, New Jersey. And he says, you're in the army. I said, I am. How do I get out of this? Go through with it, he says. The best thing ever happened to you. That was 64, April the 28th. Landed in, in Da Nang and, and we were driving... There was trucks, two and a half ton trucks there to take us back. It was just jungle, jungle, wooden huts. Terrible, I thought. There was a lot of bugs and all kinds of snakes and everything. <laughs> it was a beautiful country, but then it was wrecked. It was destroyed. But now it's it's thriving. They're doing great, what can I say? But then it was completely wrecked. They give you a paper to fill out. What would you like to do? which you never get. I never thought I'd be a medic. They made me a medic, which was pretty good, actually. It's better than artillery or something like that. <laughs> and what did it mean to be a medic? Patching them up, sending them back, or tag them and then bagging them. I asked Mike to explain the term, tag them and bag them. When one of your GIs get badly smashed up and dies, so you have to put them in a body bag, and you have to put a tag on their toe, and... You have the dog tag, put it between their teeth, and that's the identification when they go back. I remember this young kid came back from Dublin, and I just happened to say, oh, look at this, sir, what is this, this young fellow's from Dublin? Yep, and what do we do now? You know what you gotta do. You tag him and bag him, you send him back, and he'll be sent to Ireland, and 
I think he said the, 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 the family will have a pension from being in the United States Army. But that was one of my first casualties, a kid from Dublin, young like myself. Jerry, he was on the front line. Jerry was Mike's future brother-in-law, whom he came to know later. He wasn't as lucky as me. Well, he was probably one of the medics to try and stop the bleeding and sending them back to where I was at. Did he get wounded or anything? No, but I did notice that he had a bad rash. Because when we were home in Ireland, I saw the rash. And he used to wear long sleeve shirts all the time. And when we were getting ready to crash for the night, I saw all the blotches and all the stuff. And I said, what's that? Oh, I said, that's nothing. I've had it for years. He wouldn't give in, but I still say it was Agent Orange. He died young, too, of uh, multiple myeloma, and I think that had a lot to do with it. You'd be sleeping, just lying down to go to sleep at night, and you'd hear all the mortars and all the stuff going off. You'd say to yourself, hope one doesn't land here. There a lot of troops over there, but nothing to win when it was, as I said, 67, 68. They were sending them all over there because of this war. They sent in more troops and more troops, but it didn't seem to do anything. There seemed to be more troops coming from North Vietnam. And, and it was all communist backed and everything. It was just a, a useless fight on both sides. I think it was a great thing when they finally got it settled because there was too many people getting killed. I think it was a wasted war, as far as I'm concerned. Why were we there? Oh, to prevent the spread of communism and all this carry on. I don't care. I don't think we should have been there at all. In the years after Mike came back from Vietnam, the war escalated, with hundreds of American troops killed in action every week. To keep up, the US instituted a lottery draft, casting a wider net to obtain its soldiers. If you were of a certain age and your date of birth was pulled from a big jar, you had to go to war. The night of the lottery, anxious young men sat glued to their televisions and their radios. September 14th. September 14th. 0-0-1. April 24th. April 24 is 002. December 30th. December 30, 003. By the late 1960s, with the war getting nastier and with the US troops being accused of atrocities, the country's mood towards it darkened dramatically. Even though he had behaved honorably as asked in the service of the United States, Mike felt the brunt of this change in public attitude. 68, 69, 70, we were hated. They spat on us, they hated us. If you were in Vietnam, don't talk about it. I remember being sitting at the bar, I worked in, and Irish people, older than me, but having a few drinks, and then come on TV about Vietnam. 
and they would say like, uh, oh, that's terrible what's going on over there. Were you there? Yeah. They'd look at you like, they didn't want nothing to do with you. Got to, got to the point then, I would say, thank God I wasn't drafted. And I remember one incident in Good Shepherd Church, there was a young fella, Vietnam veteran was killed and he was being buried from Good Shepherd. There was a bunch of protesters with their signs and whatever against the Vietnam War and the young fella going to be buried and everything. And Johnny Peters, who's a good friend of mine out in Colorado, he'd be a now better than myself. Him and a few of his friends, a bunch of his friends, rushed the protesters and took their signs off and beat them with the signs up the side of Good Shepherd Church. Terrible thing. Young fellas being buried and there there with protest signs and everything. But as time went on, the dust settled and Mike found community among his fellow veterans and many friends, all the while maintaining his deep loyalty to America and pride for the sacrifices of the Irish on America's battlefields. Fort Sam Houston was such a great fort. It was like a country club, golf courses, and because it was a medical fort, I guess, compared to some of the rest. It was a great fort. Texas, right by Fort Sam, San Antonio. It's the medical fort and where you do the medical training. I went to the Alamo quite a few times. Did you see all the Irish names that's on the wall? I would, couldn't believe it. All the Irish, they have the plaques of all the people that were killed, and, and, and I think three quarters of them were Irish. The most people killed in, in Vietnam from the, what do you call it, the zip code, Woodside, the most. The American Legion, they have meetings, run fundraisers, and they give to the veterans' hospitals, and stuff like that, and then they march in the Memorial Day parades. And basically it's just a, an organisation that uh, helps people and does a lot of good things. It was kind of like a conflict. It was no war. Because I remember when I went to join the VFW, again, the guy's name was O'Connor, I think. He says to me, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to have you in this and that. Then a week later, he tells me, he says, you can't join the VFW. Why not? It's not a war. It's a conflict. Mm. The career was police action. This was a conflict. So then I think maybe a couple of years later, he got in touch with me again. He says, they just declared it's a war now. You can join. And I just said, nah, I won't bother. My wife says, you're thick, aren't you? <laughs> what can I say? So, so that's the VFW. Yeah, that's, that's the vet, Veterans of Foreign Wars. That would be different to the American that's Legion. You'd have to be in a foreign war to join that. American Legion was for all veterans. I had uh, two vases that people got when they were in Vietnam and brought me back. Uh, Mrs. Hagen, she was actually, her name was Philomena Higgins before she got married. She was from County Mayo. He, when they lifted the embargo, her husband Michael was a big lawyer for Goodair Brothers and he was sent over to Vietnam to open up a new office. And she said they were walking down the street one night and she saw this little gift shop. And she went in and she bought this little vase, about maybe nine inches high. And he said, what, is, what are you doing with that? I'm buying this for Mike. And she felt down and she picked up a piece of dirt from the ground and put it in it and brought it back to me. And then another lady, Dr. Green, who we take care of her little dog, Herbie, and we took care of Harry before. She was over in Vietnam with her husband, and she brought back a lovely big boss. So, there you are. Did the second lady put any dirt in that? No, one? she didn't, but <laughs> she's been very good to us. Mike only stayed in the military as long as they could hold on to him, 
and he had no further desire to work in a hospital either. Back to civilian life, where he quickly broke into a profession which kept him on another front line, the bars. There were the cabarets, because most of them had the bars with the sawdust on the floor and the music. It'd usually be off Monday and Tuesday, then Wednesday through Sunday. You'd make a couple of thousand dollars. You were getting paid probably 80 bucks, I think, then. And the, the tips and the money was big. Of course, being young and gambling and whatever, partying, <laughs> it went as quick as you got it. It was a much better profession then than it is now. Back then, you could leave your money in the bar all night and overnight and they'd be there when you come back. People were nicer, people were different. It was just, what can I say? It was just a nicer atmosphere. It was just different. You always work New Year's Eve. That was the big one, where they got the license to stay open all night. When it's six o'clock in the evening and you'd work till about 10 o'clock the next day, but boy, did you make money. And then take the next couple of days off. But uh, I didn't mind working the holidays then when I was single. I didn't care. If there was a guy with me and he was married, I'd let you take off. And of course, in a city that never sleeps, when the bars shut down at 4 a.m., things went on behind closed doors. Poke was the big thing. 25 was only for families and Irish. Poker was big. It was, when I think of it. And how was Mike's game? Pretty good at it. Not bad. Them games, Charlie's in the back room. Back then, you didn't have $500 to show, you didn't get in. And there was people waiting for somebody to drop out. They'd start Monday morning after closing, when everything was finished, and it could go on till Wednesday. I mean, people waiting. Once upon a time, you didn't have to be on LinkedIn or keep your resume updated to get a job in New York. It was word of mouth and the strength of the Irish grapevine that gave Mike the chance to switch from barman after 20 plus years to building maintenance and a little more security and an easier pace. And of course, he came to be cherished by the people he served there too. I think I finished up in the bars in about 82. And then this friend of mine, Willie Lennon, Turkey Lennon. He came in one night to the hedgehog and he says, you still looking to get into the buildings? I said, I'd love to get in. So he says, go down and see Paddy Brennan. So I went down and met Paddy. And lo and behold, Paddy's people are from Armagh, across Midland. And we hit it off, start talking. He says, Mike, it's not, uh, the job is not in my building. It's in my ex-brother-in-law, Jimmy Lynch, on 84th Street. I'll call him and tell him you're coming down. So I went down, met Jimmy, and we talked. Great old talk, and then he says, well, seeing that Paddy sent you, I'm giving you the job. He said, but it's one problem, what? It's nights. I said, Jimmy, what do you think I've been doing for the last 22 years? Midnight porter. Then two years, back elevator man. Another year at the door, and then maybe two years at the door, and then the board came and asked me if I wanted to be the superintendent, and I said, me? A quick note for our global audience. A superintendent, or super, is the head honcho in a building, making sure everything is properly maintained and running correctly and the tenants are happy. A super can have a lot on his plate, but is well compensated and gets to live rent-free in the building. Come on, Mike, you've been in our apartments. You've done so much work. I used to go in there on my days off and do work, you know, like plumbing and everything for them. They said, we know what you're capable of. That's why you're ask- we're asking you. I came home and I said to Kathy, guess what? I got offered the super job. You're kidding. I said, yep. And then she said, I don't know if I'm too happy on leaving Sedgwick Avenue. 
Elizabeth Bamrick was my managing agent for the for the building. Called me up, Mike. There's a course coming up for uh, refrigeration. Do you want to go? I said, I don't know. Yeah, you're going. Then another one came up for locksmithing. You're going. I could make keys, master keys, you name it. And then when the when the asbestos thing was in full gear, she says to me, I'm going to send you to school for that. So they came and they cordoned off everything and they had everything cleared out. She sent me to school. I became a handler. And then a friend of mine, Seamus O'Rourke from Newry, he was a contractor where he could dispose of it. Me and him got together. We done we done all the apartments. We made money. They were happy. And then he had the license to get rid of it. And I done people locked themselves out and say, I gotta call a locksmith. I said, What about the spare key? That's the key I locked inside. I said, Don't worry. I'll be right back. Get them in. Oh my god. And stuff like that. It was just <laughs> what can I say? Everything I went to school for came into play. There was something else Mike survived besides Vietnam. I had esophageal, colon and liver. What was my percentage? 20? Prognosis. Yep. Bring it on. We'll beat it. <laughs> I, won't, I won't say the language I used. <laughs> Two major operations. Radiation every morning at 7.30. Back to work. Chemo every Wednesday for eight weeks, back to work. Didn't let it stop me. Just kept on going. I came home one Saturday from playing golf and we were meeting another friend of mine, Louis Benitez, a great friend of mine from the Legion. He ended up dying with cancer. Cathy says Louis called him and his girlfriend. We want to meet us down in the village. I said, all right, we'll have a quick sandwich. So we ate the sandwich and something hurt. But that evening, I said, it's gone. Sunday, I was, I said, it's gone. Monday, I went into the apartment on 84th Street. I said, I'm going to run down to Rudin's office. Why? Something about that pain bothers me. Why is it back? I says, no. Why are you going down there? I said, I just told you. Just, I'm going to run down to see him anyway because something bothers him. So I went down and sat with him, explained everything to him. He said, OK, let's get you into the back doing endoscopy. So they done it. The next thing he came out, in about 20 minutes, he says, i got bad news for you. But you got esophageal cancer. You're kidding. I got to get you into Lennox Hill right away. Dr. Curtin in my building, who was with Sloan Kettering, stopped Cathy one night, a couple of nights later. What's this I hear about Mike? She told him, Oh no, I, I need your permission. Get him out of there. I want to get him into Sloan Kettering. I did. Great move. Had the best doctors and never looked back. Cancer never came back. Interestingly, his cancer did have one unexpected, perhaps beneficial, side effect. I haven't drank in. 18 years, I think. When I was battling the cancer, I quit drinking. And I did like to drink. It got that it didn't taste good anymore. But guess with all the chemo and the radiation, it just didn't taste good. And, and it started to make me sick. So I gave it up altogether. And what about it do you miss? Do Don't you miss, miss it at all. I think I had it. Two glasses of wine in about 18 years. The more I talk with Mike Doherty, the more I feel that the company of others feeds his soul and the more around him the merrier. Which is why, when I ask him about our friend, the virus of 2020, for the first time, he becomes wistful. It sure put a full stop to everything. No more Irish centre. 
I missed that Irish Sunday. When are we opening up again? <laughs> I enjoyed playing the cards and it was great. I enjoyed it. But hopefully this will pass. I don't know when, no. No more American Legion. No more of my car club. No nothing. You know, and you can go out wear a mask and things have changed. It's just, I don't know when it's going to end, but it has just put a damper on everything. Things ain't what they used to be. But hard as it has been for Mike this year, there is one true thing that keeps his glass half full on the bar of life. Mike's wife, Kathleen, is present by Mike's side throughout our chat. By her own volition, she remains as quiet as can be. And how is it that you're in the Cork Association? Because my wife, Kathleen, is from Cork. That's how I snuck in there. They even honoured me one year. So what can I say? <laughs> well, you're a great, a great husband to leave your county and go into the Cork Association. Fair yeah, play to you. Got a great wife. I knew her in 81, and of course I was bartending then. I tried to strike up with her, but she didn't want to be bothered me because I was a bartender and worked nights and drank and whatever, and so on and so forth. And then I got to be friendly with her. I was going to American Legion dance one night in, in 213th and Broadway. My friend John Sheridan, who owned the pub then, the Hedgehog, he says, are you going to the dance this Thursday? Are you going to the dance? I said, I am. Who are you going with? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you have two tickets. Man, I says, I haven't even thought anybody. So I happened to be bowling that night, and a friend of hers, husband, John Cronin, was there. And he happened to say to me, you know who's up in, in my house tonight? Who? Kathy. Kathy who? Kathy, Kathy, the one-year-old. I said, oh, give me the damn phone number. I need someone to go to the dance. <laughs> she told me, I'll tell you, I'll let you know the next day, because she was working a lot. She called me the next day and said, I'd love to go. The rest is history. Forty years. Thirty-eight, something like that. But happy years. Ups and downs, but what can I say? I'm a happy man. And there are some notable friends. Like, like John Brown used to say, God, Mike, if we had all the money that we spent when we were bartending. John Brown of Canturk, County Cork, and proprietor of the Grandstand Bar in Elmhurst, Queens, is known to many in New York. He truly is a star. I know John Brown since 1969, and we've been friends for that many years. Yeah, I worked in a bar on 63rd, right off Roosevelt. It used to be the old Castle Inn. So that night I said, now I'm going to check out Woodside. And then he went from Dillon's, the Woodside Steakhouse, to Dillon's. To whatever, and they ended up in the bliss. And that's where I met John Brown. And we've been friends ever since. John Timoney and myself shared an apartment together. There was four of us, actually. We had a three-bedroom apartment on 194th and Broadway. In his time, Irish native John Timoney was one of the most prominent leaders in American law enforcement. Every time I'd be coming home or coming in, John was running out the door with the books under his arm. I'm going to class, I've got a few classes, see you later. Where are you going tonight? The Red Mill, whatever. See you there later. He was a go-getter and very brainy and into the books and it ended up good. He was uh, assistant on the Bratton and then he was the commissioner in Philadelphia and then in Florida. So he done well. He just died a few years ago. He was a great guy, very happy-go-lucky. And he had a real Dublin accent. <laughs> I didn't see him for quite a few years and then one day I was driving over by uh, the Jolly Tinker Bar in, in Kingsbridge on like Bedford Park and I'm driving and I look, there's a bunch of kids in little uh, softball uniforms. 
And I said, that looks like Timoney. So I stopped and I got out and sure enough, he was the coach of the little, the little league team and everything. So we talked and had a great old chat after all them years. They say a dog can tell a man's character. So it comes as no surprise that a man with as kind a heart as Mike's is man's best friend's best friend. I take care of people's dogs and I still do. We're retiring six years ago. We were looking around. We went to Boulevard Gardens, believe it or not, where my legion is. And I said, how is it that animals here? Oh, we don't accept animals at all. Why do you have animals? No, but I did. And maybe, who knows, I might get an, an, an animal again. But I said, we take care of dogs. We still do, from people from 84th Street when they go away. She says, well, Celtic Park might suit you. I said, where the hell is Celtic Park? She told us. And I looked around and I liked it. So I called Cathy. Actually, when I was looking at the apartment, I got talking to this guy, Chuck, who had a little dachshund, and then a couple of other little dogs, and I love my dog. I said, we're put a bid on an apartment. We're getting, we're, we have an interview uh, Wednesday, I think it was. And we talked, and she says, well, I said, well, hopefully I'll be seeing more of you if I get this apartment. He says, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Why? I'm the president of the board. I just interviewed you. And, and, and Deborah Green, Dr. Green said, you're retiring, you're moving. What are we going to do? I said, what? What about Harvey? I said, I'll stick to care. You will. I'll come in and pick him up and he can come out to the country out in Woodside. <laughs> she got a kick out of that. And then it got to be, she said that when she'd call and say we're going away for 10 days, I said, oh, don't worry, I'll get him. So I'd go in and, I, and she says, would you believe I was getting his over, his bag ready. I hung it on the door and he sat at the door and he couldn't wait. And when, when he come out to the street and see us, she'd have to let him go. caps. I always wore a cap. I just love them. I don't know what it is about it, but <laughs> I like to wear them. They suit you. Hey, Brian. Hey, Paul. How are you? Brian is my pal. He grew up in the Bronx, lives in the city now. I'm good. I'm good. Did you get a chance to listen to Mike Doherty's story? Yes, I did. You know, I was thinking, while you and I were too young for Vietnam, you were a kid here in New York at the time. What was that like? Here's what I remember. You know, as a kid growing up in the Bronx, we all played streetball. The older kids played with the younger kids. This is how information was passed down from parents to older kids to younger kids. What was communicated was in bits and pieces. It was the fear, the worry that I remembered most, stories about older brothers or kids from the next block that were in Vietnam, and the anxiety was everywhere and real. That's powerful, Brian. Younger generations won't know this. By the way, Brian, did you like the way I put chopper sounds in the episode? Yes, I did, Paul. Like all the great movies about Nam. Can't have Nam without choppers. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to keep in touch on social media at Centerpiece NY. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y. You can also visit us at centerpieceny.com. Email us at centerpieceny at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our interview with Mike Doherty was conducted in November 2020, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols. The New York Irish Centre would like me to mention that it is the grateful recipient of grants from Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and New York City's Department for the Aging, along with fantastic community support from listeners like you.